Have you ever thought about things like battle cries or rally points, things that people get around and can really come together and say, this is something that I can stand behind. I can get behind this battle cry. I was thinking about the Revolutionary War. There were several battle cries in the Revolutionary War. Uh, no taxation without representation. Or uh, don't tread on me. How about the one that I think generated sort of the most energy? Give me liberty or give me death. People got behind these statements. You see, there's something natural, it seems like, within us to come together behind something and say, I'm, I'm all in here. I'm putting my energy here. Well, today, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what I want to tell you is that as we put our energy behind things and as we sort of declare our rally point or our battle cry, we need to be careful. You see, we should rally behind Christ, but we must be careful that we're never creating sides or rallying behind something other than Christ. We must reject tribalism and instead embrace unity as we humbly identify with Christ. The church in Corinth had a problem. And that problem stemmed from tribalism. They got together and they formed groups. And these groups created disunity in the church. So today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through chapter 2, verse 5. And what I want you to look for is God's solution to tribalism or division. God's solution is to humbly embrace the cross. So the challenge today is for you to humbly embrace the cross. Three years after leaving the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul had gotten word that there were problems in this church. This church that he had invested several years of time in forming this church and teaching this church. And problems had come up and Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to address those problems. Therefore, the book of 1 Corinthians is very much like a medical manual for the church. Here are the problems that a church can face. Here's the diagnosis, and here's the treatment for such problems. So as we read this, just like you do in life, we don't necessarily have to use this to address problems we're experiencing now, but rather we use this to develop healthy habits that will ward off problems that we might face if we're not careful. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I not, did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius 
So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony of God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your wisdom transcends ours. I thank you that you have given us a source of unity. I thank you that that source is not in our, ourselves, but rather it is you. And so as we dig into this passage, I pray that you would open our minds that we might Focus on the cross, on the gospel, that which brings us together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start, though, by pointing out to you verses 10 through 17. And what I want you to see in verses 10 through 17 is an important, important point. That tribalism, while seemingly a natural human tendency, must be rejected. We like to choose sides. You don't believe me? What are you planning to watch this afternoon and this evening? Have you picked a side yet? 
we like to choose sides. It's, it's really built into us. But we instead need to reject tribalism, reject the sorts of things that would divide us. Paul begins this section with a very strong statement. He says, I urge you, I urge you, I appeal to you is what the NIV translates it as, I urge you, brothers and sisters, but beyond just a pure Paul urging them, he says, I urge you in the name of Jesus Christ, with all of the force and applicability of something that Jesus Christ himself commands us, Paul says, I urge you that you all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions. Paul's urging is that there be no divisions. Paul's urging is that they practice three key practices. And that comes because tribalism must be replaced. Tribalism must be replaced with unity in both mind and thought. Look at the practices that Paul encourages. He says, first of all, that you should agree in speech. Second, that you should not be divided. Third, that you might be united in mind and thought. In some sense, this is a hierarchy. We could agree in speech. In fact, that's something that we do day in and day out, right? As you go through your job, as you interact with others, a company that is working agrees in speech. Otherwise, companies tend to fall apart if that doesn't happen. You can agree in speech. But Paul says that's not enough. It must not be that you merely give lip service to this. You must reject division. That you be not divided. Don't just agree to disagree. Don't just nod and say yes and then go do something different. Don't be divided. But it's more than just don't be divided. In fact, be united in mind and thought. The problem that the church in Corinth had was a problem that Chloe's household had identified. Chloe was probably a, a wealthy woman who would have supported the Apostle Paul and probably in business transactions had gotten word. Word had spread that things are going really bad in Corinth. And she probably notified Paul, hey, there's a problem going on here. Chloe's household had reported a problem. People had fallen into quarrels. There were quarrels among them. What are those quarrels about? Well, what we see here, Paul says, is that some of the people were saying, we follow Paul. We follow the teaching of Paul. Others said, we follow Apollos. You know, Apollos, according to the book of Acts, was an eloquent speaker. He spoke really well and uh, you know, had some intelligence about him and the sort of guy that, you know, he seems like he's a smart guy. We follow Apollos. You follow Paul, we follow Apollos. Others said, we don't follow Paul or Apollos. We follow Peter, the, you know, the apostle in Jerusalem. We follow Peter. And then others got on their high horse. I mean that. And they said, we follow Christ. Paul says, 
none of that. Don't, don't be divided. Don't divide and say, I follow Paul. Don't divide and say, I follow Apollos. Don't divide from the body to say, I follow Christ. Because that's not what Christ wants. He doesn't want you all divided. Rather, if we look at verse 13, Christ isn't divided. Because devotion must be devoted to Christ alone. Christ is not divided. Paul asked this question, is Christ divided? And in Greek, when you ask a rhetorical question, you actually do provide the answer. Okay? So it's not translated in our NIV, but when you ask a good rhetorical question in Greek, you provide the answer. Paul didn't provide the answer here. He just left it open. What he's telling the church in Corinth is by saying you follow Paul, by saying you follow Apollos, by saying you follow Cephas, by saying you follow Christ, you have actually divided Christ. And that's ridiculous. Paul says, is Christ divided? And everyone's expecting this answer of no. And Paul just lets it hang. The problem in Corinth was they were dividing Christ. Paul goes into more rhetorical questions. He says, was Paul crucified for you? And here he actually does provide the answer of no in the Greek. He says, no. Was Paul crucified for you? That's silly. Absolutely not. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Absolutely not. Devotion must be directed to Christ alone. He is our source of devotion. I like what happens next because it shows that Paul's a person. Paul goes into, you know, a rabbit trail. Have you ever gone on a rabbit trail? I like to picture this because I imagine Paul, most of his letters did not write himself, but rather he worked through an amanuensis, someone who would write for him as he dictated it. So I imagine, you know, this guy's writing, oh, this is good. Is Christ divided? Was Paul? This is really good. And then Paul all of a sudden drifts off and he says, uh, yes, I also baptized, oh, the household of Stephanus, and, and his amanuensis is writing, and you know, I almost picture him finally interrupting Paul and saying, you know, can we get back on the subject, Ron? And Paul comes back in verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Because it is all about and the focus of Christ, the focus of the message of Christ is the gospel. What Paul is saying, baptize, baptism, it does matter, but compared to Christ, insignificant. Wisdom, compared to Christ, insignificant. Eloquent words, compared to Christ, insignificant. The cross is life-changing. And that's the point of unity. We must reject tribalism and instead embrace the cross. So my action step for you. Evaluate your devotions. Are you devoted to Christ alone? Where are your devotions? Where are your loyalties? Are they to Christ alone? 
Paul continues in verses 18 through 25. And what he teaches in 18 through 25 is that the cross, while seemingly despicable and foolish, must be embraced. In verse 18, Paul highlights the shame of the cross. He starts off with, for the message of the cross, the phrase to the me- for the message is what is literarily or poetically called a syndicate. So let me give you an example of this. A syndicate is something where the smaller takes the place of the greater. The, the lesser component represents the whole. You all actually use this. How many of you have ever gone out for a steak dinner and all you ate was a piece of meat? No, no, that's a syndicate. When we say, let's go out for a steak dinner, we don't mean that we're just going to have a piece of meat, right? We mean we're going to have everything, and the piece of meat is sort of going to hold the central role in our dinner. That's what Paul is doing here. He says, for the message of the cross, the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, rose again three days later, paying for our sin, the message of the cross, that entire message of salvation for sinners is foolishness to those who are perishing. The culture surrounding death on the cross was something that made the cross appear foolish to those who don't embrace it. Jewish law taught that anybody who was hung from a tree was permanently cursed. And so the act of Christ hanging on the tree to the Jews was an act of being cursed. How could this possibly be a good thing? Romans used crucifixion as a terror tactic to keep people in line. I mean, it was terrifying, and you used it to keep people from coming out of line. Cicero describes crucifixion by saying it was the cruelest and most terrible punishment. Josephus wrote about crucifixion. It was the most pitiable of deaths. Crucifixion looked like foolishness. In our modern culture, we have become numb to the cross. We see a cross and we identify it with actually something good. Whether or not we believe in Christ, people see a cross and they automatically sort of identify that as something pleasant. You go into a Catholic hospital, what do you see on the wall? A cross, right? It's comforting. For the people who this was written to, the cross was anything but comforting. And if you didn't understand the gospel, it was foolishness. But to those who do understand the gospel, the cross does not represent foolishness. Rather, it represents the power of God. Notice the comparison that's actually being made here. To those who reject the cross, it's foolishness. But to those who embrace the cross, it's the power of God. If you were to contrast foolishness with something else, what would you pick? Wisdom? Paul doesn't do that yet. 
Because before he wants to get to wisdom, he first addresses power. Because the cross is what saves us. The cross is what has power over sin. Understand I'm using syndicate right there when I say the cross. I mean the whole gospel, right? The cross is the thing that grants salvation, defeat of sin. In verses 20 and 21, Paul does go into wisdom, though. Because foolishness is met with both power, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul continues in verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Three rhetorical questions emphasize the futility of the world's wisdom. There are people out there who know a whole lot of information and have no solutions to the world's problems. You see this. You live this. Is the world full of problems? Yes. Have we been studying how to solve problems for a long time? Yes. Have we made any progress? No. Paul's questions, his rhetorical questions, are just as valid today as they were back then. Where is the wise person? If you're so wise, why haven't we solved these problems by now? Where's the teacher of the law? If this can be solved by laws, we got a lot of them. You can ask Dick. He can tell you the laws. We've got a lot of laws. Where's the teacher of the law? Have they solved our problem? No. What about the philosophers? Those who sit around and think for the purpose of thinking. Have they solved our problems? No. And that's evidence that God has made the wisdom of the world into nothing short of foolishness. We're not solving problems with the wisdom of the world. Only God's wisdom can bring a solution. So we started off with this problem of tribalism in the first point. And Paul's going to bring this back together for us now. Look at verse 22. Paul starts with, Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom. He's now brought full bear on two of the primary tribes that people were struggling to unite. Jews, who had the law of God, who had supposedly, in their minds, the wisdom of God, and they were looking for, just show us a sign that this is the right thing to do. Throughout the whole Gospels, the Jews asked Jesus for a sign. Jesus told them he'd give them a sign. What was the sign? destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. That was the sign that Jesus gave him. That was the sign Jesus actually did. Paul says, here's one tribe, Jews. They look for a sign. Another tribe, Greeks. They're looking for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. The Christian solution to tribalism, the Christian solution 
to division is to embrace the cross. To those who are called to God, the cross, Christ, represents the power and wisdom of God. Hence, for those who are called to Christ, Christ unites. We have a common item that we should embrace, and that is the cross. God is the one we should get behind. God is the one we should rally behind. The cross of Christ is our rally point. He continues on, the Apostle Paul continues on, uh, in verse 25, says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, don't interpret this with too many implications. Paul is not saying that God is, has foolishness. He's not saying that God has weakness. Rather, he is trying to emphasize, why would you get behind anyone else? Why would you put your loyalty to anybody else? Why would you devote yourself to anybody else? Because God is wiser than anybody else. God is more powerful than anybody else. Let me give you an action step here. Take a minute, just a minute, and remind yourself of the significance of the cross. And then take a second to pray and thank God for the cross. We're going to do this. Take a minute, all together, corporately. Let's pray and thank God for the cross. Father, I thank you for the cross of Christ and the salvation that that represents. I thank you that you have brought us here under that salvation. And I pray that as a church corporately, that we would, with one mind, one in thought, embrace the cross as our point of loyalty. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for saving me from sin, for forgiving me from sin. And I pray that you would help me to focus on the cross. I pray that you would help each of us here to focus on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. As Paul continues on in verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 5, he emphasizes humility. Humility. Humility, while largely missing from our world, must be modeled. We need to model humility. When we look at the cross, it should remind us of who we are. And if we are truly looking at the cross of Christ, and then we reflect on who we are, what we see is sin and redemption. And that should humble us. In verses 26 through 29, Paul tells us that God seems to work not with the best, brightest, or smartest, but rather God works with everyday people. Paul is concerned as he's writing this that the Corinthians have fallen for the idolatry of the world. The idolatry of the world 
was the worship of status. In the city of Corinth, in the Roman Empire, status mattered. You had slaves. You had freedmen, people who had bought their freedom. You had people who were born free. You had rich. You had poor. You have educated. You had uneducated. Most of those statuses, in some way or another, kind of apply to us today. And I challenge you that in our society, we too worship status. The Corinthians had fallen for the trick. They had begun worshiping status. And so the Apostle Paul reminds them, in contrast to the wise, God's chosen the foolish things of the world. In contrast to the influential, God has chosen the weak. In contrast to those of noble birth, God has chosen the lowly. It doesn't mean that there weren't wise people in Corinth. Paul doesn't say there's no wise among you. But rather he emphasizes that God's choice is independent of status. If anything, God chooses the lowly. Why? So that nobody can boast before God. God's focus is that nobody boasts before God, but rather, in verses 30 through 31, the people are allowed to boast in God. God allows his people to boast in him. In verse 31, Paul is actually quoting from Jeremiah 9.24, which says, The one who boasts, boasts about this, that they have understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Paul's emphasis is that people might boast not in themselves, but in the Lord. Paul calls on the Corinthians to reflect true humility. Humility that comes by recognizing the insignificance of who we are and the significance of who Christ is, of the cross. Paul calls on the Corinthians to boast in the Lord. We could probably have an entire sermon on chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to do that today because I just want to summarize it for you. God desires for his people to place their faith completely in him alone. Our faith must be in God alone. That's the point of humility. That's the point of unity. When we put our focus solely in God, we will be united together. So let me give you an action step. This week, will you determine to boast in the Lord? Determine to boast in the Lord this week. We live in a society that makes it easy to boast in yourself. I almost guarantee that there are going to be commercials on today when you're watching the game that encourage you to boast in yourself. 
determined to boast in the Lord. As we look forward to that coming day when Christ returns, let's look at our memory verse for the week. Our memory verse that we've been doing for the month of January is 2 Timothy 4.8. Will you join with me in saying this? 2 Timothy 4.8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8. When we long for that appearing, we begin to recognize we are nothing, but God saved us. And we have everything that we ever need, all the boasting we'll ever need in God alone. One of the ways that we can work at growing in unity is by putting our focus on Christ. And the way we do that is through discipleship, through studying God's word together, through growing together. I'm going to invite Pastor David to come up and talk a little bit about some of the discipleship opportunities that we have as a church. Good morning. All right. So I'm going to talk about something really important to me, and that is um, our, our small groups and our home groups. And so we're going to have over the next couple of months uh, leaders and co-leaders and hosts and people like that from each group to come, come up and talk to you about what their group is like and share their hearts about it and what they like about it and how it challenges them and that kind of thing. And the idea is that you get to put a face to the name of these people, and you get to hear their heart about things and say, yeah, that sounds like something I want to do. And in my group, what we do is we, we tell a story from the Bible each week, and then we spend some time talking through application questions that focus not so much on Bible study, but more so on you and how you've decided to um, grow in your spiritual life throughout your life. So when you come across these things, you talk about the thought process. Well, I, I thought this, and I tried this, and this happened. And when people listen to you, they shape how they understand Jesus in their life. And so over the course of time, we see our lives change, and we see how um, we grow spiritually. We have this spider web of learning going on. Everyone's learning from each other. And um, instead of telling you all the reasons why I think you should do this, I wanted to tell you this story. Um, in First John, uh, John the Baptist is walking with two of his disciples, and he sees Jesus, and he points Jesus out to them. And he says, look, it's, it's the Lamb of God. And they start looking at Jesus, and they start following him. Okay, but Jesus doesn't know that they're following him. They're just like following him around. And Jesus being Jesus, like, eventually turns around and looks at him and goes, what do you want? And they go, uh, Rabbi, uh, where are you staying? What are you doing today? You know, which, whose house are you staying at? And I think the implication is, well, can we come? Um, and Jesus, classic Jesus goes, come and see. And so he, they go with Jesus, and they stay with him that day, and they become Jesus' disciples. And Jesus isn't like, well, I'm doing this, and this is going to happen, and you should come. It's going to be great. We're going to have pizza. It's not anything like that. It's like, I want you to come and see. It's this 
I'm going to teach you, but you're not going to understand it until you experience what this is like. And this is our, th- this is our motto for, for groups, is you just come and see it. Um, and this is, when we have people up here talking about their groups, this isn't a tribalism thing. This isn't like, well, I like that person more than that person, so I'm going to try that person's group. This is a united battle cry under Christ of, you know, what, we're, what we want to do as our church. This is one, I want this to become our DNA. And if there's two things that I believe very strongly about our group, or about our church, is, number one, our students are our most important people at this church. And I get to say that as a student pastor. So, Number two, if you're not in a discipleship relationship, you need to be in one. And that's from the Bible. So you can't argue with me on that one. Um, and a group is a perfect spot for that. Okay? And I'm, not, I'm a pretty calculated person. I'm not big into universal statements. I don't see much use for them. But I am all in on this. And this is something I've wanted for Southview for a long time, but I didn't want to come in and change things real quick right away. Because I, just want you, I didn't want you to be like, who's this guy? Um, but now that we're in this a little bit, I want this from our church. I want new people to come into our church and, and be like, hey, who are you? Nice to meet you. Stay for Sunday school. What group do you want to be in? Okay. That's how I see Southview playing out in the future. And um, we have groups right now that are starting that are looking for people. And if you're looking to just experience what this is like, to just come and see it, come talk to me. You can come talk to me right now. This is a discipleship invitation. Um, but uh, you can call me during the week. You don't have to come up here right now if you don't want to. Um, give me a call anytime. You can call Pastor Nathan too. We'll, we'll put you in a group right away and you can come see what this is all about. So thank you very much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care enough about your church to have directed the Apostle Paul to write about the priority of the cross, the priority of the gospel. And as we look forward to building discipleship, to building more discipleship relationships, I pray that people would recognize that to prioritize the gospel means to prioritize discipleship, means to form relationships with each other, closer relationships than we get by just coming to a worship service, but the sorts of relationships where we share the work that you are doing in our lives. Father, we need to embrace the cross. And that only will happen when we embrace your model for growth. I pray that we would be driven to grow, driven to enter relationships, driven to prioritize the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.